In the 1600s, Angelus Solis said, The soul, an eternal spirit, is beyond time's hold. Even in this world, it is in eternity's fold. Welcome to the Soul Podcast. I'm Stacy Wheeler. Today, we're going to travel closer to the modern age. We're going to look at Europe from the Dark Ages up to the 17th century. And we'll travel to the Americas to see what the Aztecs had to say about the soul around the same time. And we'll see how people were forced to hide their belief in the soul for the first time in history as the church started to see the inner spirit as a threat to their power. And we'll also hear what deep thinkers of this time had to say about the spirit inside. We're going to jump around a little bit today, so we're not going to go in perfect linear fashion. We're going to be covering blocks of hundreds of years on two different continents. So I'm going to jump forward in the timeline to the 1300s through 1500s in the Americas. Then we're going to head back over to Europe and cover the year 1000 to the 1500s, late 1500s. This was an eventful time in Europe. It was the first time we see the church try to control the individual's personal relationship to the soul. And you'll see how it led to a dark chapter in human history. I need to include a warning here. In order to understand the historical journey we've had with the soul and see how people have gone through an amazing amount to stay true to it. We're going to look at some material that's going to be uncomfortable for some listeners. This will include disturbing details about public executions in the Middle Ages. This is not the normal tone or subject matter of the podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, please know that. But it's an important piece of the puzzle, which helps us understand this thing we feel inside. So we need to look at this. This section isn't appropriate for young listeners, and others may, as I mentioned, find it difficult to hear. But we need to talk about it. This vital chapter demonstrates the power and resilience of the soul. We'll see that no amount of brutality could block our relationship with our deeper self. The soul, at some point, goes into hibernation. Or maybe more accurately, I can say, we put it into hibernation to protect ourselves. But then you'll see it reemerge. Now... Before we head to the Dark Ages, let's take a trip to the Americas, before they called it that. Long before Columbus sailed to the Americas, and long before the Spanish conquered the region, the Aztecs believed in the existence of the soul. They had a way of looking at life and death, and the way the soul ascended. After death, the Aztecs believed the soul would go to one of three places. The sun, the underworld, or a place called Tlatlocan which has been translated to mean a kind of paradise. This is a bit like the Christian sea heaven, but with a few twists. The Aztec version of heaven is ruled over by the rain deity Tlatloc and his consort, I'll try to pronounce her name, Chalchiutlecu. It'll be in the show notes. Backing up, I guess it's interesting to look at the fact that this is a rain deity. As we've seen through other historical religions, from thousands of years before in and around Europe, most deities were associated with, you know, things of nature, things that were unexplainable. So it's not surprising the Aztecs had a rain deity, and that was this major primary god. This is the way the rules worked. Those who died through drowning or lightning, or a consequence of disease associated with the rain deity, got an automatic ticket to paradise. Souls of fallen warriors and women that died in childbirth would transform into hummingbirds that followed the sun on its journey through the sky. And souls of people who died from less glorious causes would go to Miklan, the underworld. Less important, of course, than those details about their belief system 
around heaven and hell or the equivalents is the fact that they saw everyone as having a soul that lived after death. The Aztecs had a pictograph language that existed long before the Spanish conquistadors destroyed the Aztec culture in and around the 1500s. Most of the writings were done on perishable materials such as deer skins. There was also willful and short-sighted destruction of cultural artifacts by the Spanish, as well as the priests who came to civilize the native population. And I put the word civilize in quotes. As we know, civilization is sometimes brutal. In trying to convert the Aztecs to the Catholic religion, the native writings were suppressed. So no writings other than those carved into stone still exist from before the age of Columbus. So it's possible and likely that the Aztecs' belief in the soul went back hundreds of years and even more before Europeans came to the Americas. The Aztecs were at least a few thousand years behind the Europeans in their technological advancements and societal development. And the soul was at the center of their culture. Again, far removed from other cultures and tucked away on their own continent, the Aztecs had a historical belief in an eternal soul. So this is a pattern we see continue. It doesn't matter where you are on the planet or how removed from other cultures you are, each individual culture has its own belief in the soul. Traveling back to Europe now, we're going to land around the year 1000. The power of the church is growing and Christianity is the dominant religion. Starting in about the year 1000, we see that the writings about the soul slow to a near stop for more than five centuries. As Christianity, and in particular Catholicism, take hold in Europe, the church gains massive amounts of power. The church is so powerful that it influences monarchies and government policy. And free thought is massively stifled through fear. The church understood people's relationship to the soul and saw the value in laying claim to it. So they declare that the church is the only means to connect with and protect the divine spark we all knew we held. The policies of the church continued for generations. So as generations passed under the influence of the church, many in the population began to just accept the church's claim that the soul and the God of Christianity are intertwined. They embraced religion in hopes of connecting more deeply with the power they feel inside and attributed it to God. As we've seen, people had known for at least a few thousand years that sitting silently with yourself could lead to a soul reunion. Use of prayer and chanting would have the same effect, of course. So people surely felt a soul connection while doing these practices through the church. But religion had strict rules about what were appropriate ways to connect with the higher power. Ultimately, religion became a wedge between people and their most valuable possession, the spirit inside. For some, it stifled their ability to connect rather than enhancing it. And it drew an emotional shield across the relationship with the divine perfection they felt. Some even pushed back, stating their own way of believing, their own way of feeling. We've seen through the last five episodes that there have been a steady flow of philosophies about this unseen force. We've been struggling to understand it for tens of thousands of years. Since recorded time, people have always felt it. Suddenly, during this time of church domination, writings about the soul were stifled by fear of retribution from the church. And for half a millennium, philosophical writings about the human's relationship to the soul came to a near standstill in Europe. Those who veered away from the church's doctrine risked being accused of being a heretic and risked punishment of a horrible kind. So what were these people so afraid of? Around the year 1077, the Catholic Church began killing people for speaking or writing opinions that differed from church doctrine. These murders began as hangings 
but by the 1300s, the church changed tactics and began burning these so-called heretics at the stake. Consider that. Simply disagreeing with the church publicly was reason enough to lose your life in the most gruesome and public way. Backing up a bit, in the early Middle Ages, people were widely illiterate, and heresy was uncommon. By the High Middle Ages, more people were learning to read. Many wanted to read the Bible. When they did, they sometimes came to different conclusions from those of the church. Before this time, most people had been told what was in this holy book, rather than reading it and determining for themselves what it meant. So when they came to different conclusions than what they had been told, the church started accusing anyone demanding access to the Bible as being a sinner, and it could even get you accused of heresy. It seemed that an educated public with too much free thought was becoming a problem for the church. So the rise in literacy led to an increase in accusations of heresy in the Middle Ages. And by the High Middle Ages, heresy was so common that the church felt threatened. Any belief differing at all from the church could be regarded as heresy and be considered a punishable act. Free thought, free speech, were a crime under church power. And what's even more disturbing is that these people, for the most part, weren't denouncing God, just interpreting the Bible in a different way, in an attempt to better understand their faith and this feeling they had inside. Many, if not most, were more devout than those running the church. They were exploring their faith to try to understand the divine nature of the soul. Now let's look at an example from the 1300s to get an idea of the kind of people the church was killing. Marguerite Perrette was burned at the stake in 1310 in France after being found guilty of heresy. And what was her crime? She wrote and distributed a book which had a focus on trying to understand and explain the nature of the soul. Now, she first landed on the church's radar because the book was written in Old English instead of Latin, as the church had said anything quoting the Bible must be written in Latin. This alone was reason to be accused of heresy. It's important to note that her belief system was highly influenced by the teachings of the church. Of course it was. The church was all-powerful. It was the center of life in her time. This book was a deep dive into understanding the nature of the soul and its connection to religious belief in God. None of its content denounces God. It only looked for answers to that deep knowing she had that there was a divinity in herself, what has been called the great spark, the inner perfection, and the God inside. She wrote, I am God, says love, for love is God, and God is love, and this soul is God by the condition of love. I am God by divine nature, and this soul is God by righteousness of love. Marguerite Perret had spent much time in quiet reflection with her soul. She had experienced a soul reunion, which is reflected in her writings. And she understood that a person would have to step back from their education and set aside their reasoning mind in order to be open to the touch of the soul. At the start of her book, she explains how to approach the writings. She wrote, Theologians and other clerics, you will not have the intellect for it, no matter how brilliant your abilities, if you do not proceed humbly. And may love and faith together cause you to rise above reason, since they are the ladies of this house. Well, this pissed off the church. How dare some strong-willed woman talk down to them about religion? All right, that's conjecture on my part, but clearly they weren't happy. She was imprisoned in 1308, and then in 1310 she was tied to a stake and burned. It said that she went peacefully to her death. There are accounts from the time that the crowd was moved to tears by the calmness of how she faced her end. 
And of course she would. She understood the immortality of the soul. And this was just the start of hundreds of years of the church's reign of terror. This horrible form of execution was so well adopted by Catholic priests across Europe that by the 1500s, burning at the stake spread as far as Ireland. The book was called The Mirror of Simple Souls. That book is available online for free, or you can buy a hard copy as well. I'll put links in the show notes. As a small aside, the church seemed proud of their work. They kept records of all their killings. Today you can see a list of their atrocities on Wikipedia, all thanks to great church record keeping. You can find a link to two wiki pages in the show notes of the victims of the Catholic Church. When you check out the list, which includes hundreds of names, understand that this list isn't complete. These are the more prominent cases. After some research, I continually found cases of group burnings, beheadings, and other executions of lesser-known people. These aren't included on the wiki page. One estimate I found says that during the Inquisitions held between 1530 and 1730, which is only a portion of the time that this was going on, there were more than 1,250 executions. We know for sure there were several hundred more before the 1500s. I know this is ugly, but we're going to end in a better place, so stick with me if you can. Now at first, the burnings were rare. But time passed, and illiteracy levels dropped, and more people started reading and questioning the church's authority, and the executions increased dramatically. It increased every year for the next 200 years, and came to a horrible crescendo in the 1500s, before a slow tapering off over the next 200 plus years. In a 14 year period starting 1544, in England, Scotland, and Wales, there were 118 burnings. Some of these were mass burnings of several at a time. In the 1700s, the church finally ended the practice. But not in some sort of public declaration that they were going to. They just stopped. Going back to England, Scotland, and Ireland, let's consider that. In a 14-year period, 118 killings. Take a moment to think about the emotional impact that would have on the population. That's an average of more than eight burnings a year in an area smaller than the state of California. It would have been nearly impossible for a citizen not to be aware of the murders. Many larger towns would have even witnessed them or heard about them through first-hand accounts. This left a mark on the minds of anyone who might question the teachings of the church or question its authority on the matter of the soul. So, as you might expect, there weren't that many people willing to risk writing their beliefs on their relationship to the soul during this time. When doing research for my upcoming book, The Soul Reunion, Coming Back to Yourself, I ran into a wall when I was looking for writings about the soul between the 1200s and 1700s. Suddenly no one was talking about it. A quiet time had emerged on this topic. And then when I, I ran into the statistics and the details about these mass killings by the church, I understood why. The deafening silence matches up to the times of these killings. People were traumatized. It wasn't for another hundred years so after the killings ended before people were brave enough to ponder the nature of the soul again at least brave enough to write it down. Because of this, there are very few writings in Europe about the soul for around 500 years. The people who were bold enough to share their opinion during this time were truly brave. One was a German theologian known as Meister Eckhart. Though he wrote about the soul, he was careful to word his beliefs in a way that didn't leave God out of the equation. Around 1300, he wrote, God is born in us as soon as our soul powers, which hitherto have been tied and bound, are absolutely free, and when the mind is still and sense troubles us no longer. 
The first part of this reflects long-held understanding that the body is powered by the spirit. The second half echoes writings from thousands of years earlier. The deeper connection to the soul can be achieved when we are quiet in our mind. Though his writings are cautious, it's still an act of bravery. Imagine feeling so strongly about a topic that you would risk arrest just to write about it. If you look at the list of executions, you'll also see that it, it probably didn't hurt that the, up until this point there hadn't been any burnings of anyone in Germany, which is where he was. So he may have felt a little more safe than others in different parts of Europe. But that's how strong the belief in the soul was for many. The church had tried to suppress a human birthright, the human relationship to the divine spark. We can see that writings about the soul began to increase as the executions and arrests slowed late into the 1600s. The fear of persecution started to drop, but it still took several generations before the echoes of the Catholic Church's terrorism subsided and people in Europe felt safe again to ponder the human relationship to the soul. You stuck with me through that difficult chapter, so I want to reward you with something a bit softer. Let's travel to Persia, end of the 1300s. Hafiz wrote, A day of silence can be a pilgrimage in itself. A day of silence can help you listen to the soul play its marvelous lute and drum. Around the same time churches were burning heretics in Europe, a wise poet and mystic in the Middle East was pondering the nature of the soul with far less fear of retribution. Born Khawaja Shams Undin Muhammad Hafiz al-Shirazi, but known simply as Hafiz, this Persian Muslim was known for questioning religious hypocrisy. Like Rumi, who we spoke about a few episodes back, he too was a Sufi. Hafiz had a deep relationship to the soul. Though little is known about his practice in connecting with the divine spark, forms of meditation were common at this time. His connection with his deeper self was clear in his poetry. He wrote, I wish I could show you, when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. Many more throughout history would discover that sitting silently with yourself can bring you closer to your soul. He also wrote about the feeling you get after a soul reunion, when he wrote, Ever since happiness heard your name, it has been running through the streets trying to find you. If you've tapped into that deeper part of yourself, you understand exactly what he means. Now we make this brief stop in Persia to remind you that while the soul was under attack in Europe, it was alive and well-loved in other parts of the world at the same time, embraced, not held down. Now let's go back to Europe about the time the Middle Ages were coming to an end and the tyranny of the church was also ending. I'd like to introduce you to Angelus Solis. In the 1600s, Europe was entering a period we would later call the Renaissance. Protestants revolted against Catholic oppression, pushing back on all the years of tyranny, leading to the Thirty Years' War. Rembrandt was painting masterpieces, and a German Catholic priest, mystic, and poet known as Angelus Solis was putting a lot of thought into our relationship with the soul. Though he was a Catholic priest, Solis's thoughts and writings on the nature of the soul were often on the fringes of the Church's way of thinking and free thinking was still a dangerous thing. Though it's probably worth noting that there weren't that many live burnings in Germany throughout the Middle Ages as there had been in other parts of Europe. And there hadn't been one for almost a hundred years when Solis did his writing. So he must have felt a little more freedom in this. But of course, 
A priest could still be branded a heretic if he strayed too far from the teachings of the church. At the very least, he could be defrocked, but imprisonment was also as likely when questioning the church's teachings, so writing about the soul was still a pretty bold act. Solis had spent a lot of time thinking about the true nature of the soul beyond what the church said. He concluded that we were all eternal, even without being saved through the methods of the church. One of his boldest statements that he made was, the vengeful god of wrath and punishment is a mere fairy tale. I mean, that's pretty badass. That's pretty tough. That's pretty dangerous. He leaned quite closely towards the Buddhist and Hindu way of thinking when he wrote, Even before I was me, I was God in God, and I can be once again, as soon as I am dead to myself. The phrase dead to myself is important. He's not saying he will connect with the God inside when he's dead. He's saying he connects to the God inside when he strips away the external self, not literally dead, only dead to himself, which means essentially the destruction of the ego. The God inside is the soul. He saw the soul as separate from the personality. Solis was a brave man. Solis was driven by a desire to understand his connection to the internal perfection he felt. Like so many before him, he was seeking answers to the questions of the soul. It was so important to ponder this that he was willing to take the risks he knew were involved. Like every seeker before him and since, he understood there's so much we don't know, but he felt there was at least one thing that was undeniable, the soul. The soul. So we went on a long ride today. We started with a quote from Angelus Solis and ended with more from him. We saw people stand for the soul and fall for the love of the soul. We saw how the soul can't be completely suppressed by the powerful. And I gotta say, in researching this episode, I fell in love a little with Marguerite Perrette. And the more I read her book, the more I love her. So I'm planning on doing an entire episode about her further down the road. We're getting real close to the end of the history episodes, just one or two left now. I realize this episode has been a dark ride without an uplifting wrap up at the end I try to provide. In episode seven, we're going to start up in the 1700s and come forward and I promise it's gonna be a lot brighter and happier subject matter. We'll touch on what happened in this episode, but we won't dwell on it. So come back and listen to the next episode of the Soul Podcast, will ya? Thank you for listening to The Soul Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, learned something new, or were just entertained, please tell your friends about the show and hit that follow button. This is the best way for other people to find the show. Check the show notes for links to supporting information as well as any books or other reading material related to this episode.